One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This week making online gamers nicer to each other. If they start taking ownership of the culture and saying that this kind of behavior is not something that we want to live with and we know that there are ways to stop it then you know that could have a pretty significant effect and peering into the future of antarctica's ice loss i would say it's the the biggest unknown in future sea level rise plus a bulky piece of kit for measuring gravity gets slimmed to the size of a postage stamp this is the nature podcast for march the 31st 2016 i'm kerry smith and i'm adam levy Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. This saying, attributed to physicist Niels Bohr, is often used to refer to quantum mechanics. But climate scientists know it applies to their research too. After all, how do you work out what the future holds for the climate when you've only got one planet? You're still learning how it works, and you can't carry out carefully controlled studies. Well, the typical approach is to build computer models that simulate the relevant laws of physics and can be checked against the real world. But what if you only have limited data from the real world? And how do you cope with processes that haven't even happened yet but might come into play in the future? These are questions that scientists looking at the Antarctic are grappling with. We only have satellite data of Antarctica from the last few decades, so scientists have to work hard to make the most of the information we have. But understanding what's going to happen to Antarctica's ice is vital to understanding how global warming will impact the world. There's just so much potential sea level rise locked up in Antarctica. There there's such a, a vast amount of ice. This is Rob DeConto from the University of Massachusetts, whose report is in this week's Nature. He's been trying to peer into the future by modeling how Antarctica contributes to sea level rise. So even a small fraction of Antarctica um being mobilized and going into the ocean is going to have a global impact because it could have such a big influence lots of different groups have tried simulating antarctica's future and have come up with a broad range of results here's tamson edwards of the open university who published a study a few months ago on future ice loss in the antarctic i would say it's the the biggest unknown in future sea level rise but why what makes it so hard to pin down Uh, pretty much everything about it um all of these different ways in which ice can can flow can crack can be lost and gained uh it makes quite a complicated picture both tamson edwards and rob de conto have used models to try to get to grips with this problem but they're somewhat divided about what their models should be based on here's tamson again so we we kind of assumed that if the model is good at um simulating the recent past it's more likely to be good at predicting the future but rob thinks there's only so much that the last few decades can teach us in the very recent past 
the climate and the oceans have been, you know, certainly not as warm as they're predicted to become in the next century. So we compare the results that we get with geologic records. Geologic records. That just means records of the climate from the distant past, deduced from things like the erosion of now inland cliffs. Rob favours using data like these because there have been times in the Earth's past where the climate has looked pretty similar to today's situation. 125,000 years ago, the world looks a lot like it does today. Similar climate, and yet sea level was between six and nine meters higher. So where Tamsin's model uses direct observations of Antarctica from the last few decades, Rob's uses our understanding of sea levels from thousands of years ago. But whatever you're checking your model against, you can never be sure it'll apply to the future, says Tamsin. If you're calibrating with past data, and that includes paleoclimate data as well, because you, you never find a perfect analogue of the future in, in paleoclimate. There are always different things going on. So you, you have to bear that in mind when you're, when you're thinking about your predictions and be a bit cautious. And the same goes for models based on today's climate. It's not a done deal that tomorrow will behave like today. And what if Antarctica loses ice in different ways tomorrow than it does today? Rope's model includes certain processes that we haven't observed in Antarctica. For example, the possibility that meltwater on top of ice could make ice cliffs unstable. This could cause ice to collapse into the sea much faster than we're seeing today. Rob says his model is only accurate if he includes these kind of dramatic processes. But it's not easy to build these processes into a model. I would say that these are just really the first baby steps to, um, to try to incorporate processes like these in the models. But Tamsin's not convinced that including processes like this, that we've not really seen taking place yet, is the best bet. We haven't seen direct evidence of this, I would say, uh, that really says we have to put it in the models. Basically, at the moment, it's an exciting time. The jury's out. So whereas Tamsin's model is limited to the behaviour we know to have happened in Antarctica, Rob's includes processes that may or may not arise in the future. They're both trying to make the best use of limited information. And so, to the results... According to these different models, how much is the Antarctic going to contribute to sea level rise by 2100? We'll get to what these numbers mean in a minute, but first, here's Tamsin's estimate. We came up with a most likely of about 10 centimetres, quite low, and we came up with a prediction that there was um, only a 1 in 20 chance it would be more than 30 centimetres by the end of the century. How about Rob's model? We're getting something between 64 centimetres and a little over a metre It's a huge difference. Yes, the two models used slightly different scenarios of greenhouse gas emissions, and yes, there are plenty of other uncertainties. But the difference is still striking, and Rob's results could mean, for example, that low-lying island nations could have to evacuate sooner than was previously anticipated. You know, I hope we're wrong. (laughs) Understandable when Rob's model also predicts over 10 metres of sea level rise 500 years from now. And remember, Antarctica is just one piece of the sea level rise puzzle. Added to other sources of sea level rise, like the Greenland ice sheet, even Tamsin's estimate could lead to sea level rises of about a metre by the end of the century. A huge challenge for coastal cities around the world. But such big uncertainties mean that it's hard for the world to know what to prepare itself for. Rob is hopeful that techniques like his and Tamsin's could be combined in the future to take advantage of both recent observations and geological records. 
Tamsin, on the other hand, thinks that for the time being, it's good that we have a range of models tackling the problem in different ways. We may come up with some super ice sheet model that uh, captures everything perfectly, but it's a good idea to have different models with different approaches uh, and that they'd be independent and you can compare their results. After all, if you can't compare lots of different Earths, at least you can compare lots of different models. The details of both those model studies are available at nature.com slash nature. You heard from Tamsin Edwards, whose paper came out in Nature in December, and Rob DeConto, whose paper is out this week. Coming up later in the show, turning poisonous rants into polite conversation in the online game League of Legends. But first, here are the research highlights with Noah Baker. We know that rocks can be cracked and loosened by repeated freezing and thawing, precipitation and, of course, earthquakes. But it turns out that gentle warm weather can cause rock falls too. Two researchers measured a crack in a 500-metre cliff in Yosemite National Park. The crack between the main rock face and another large slab widened each day as the rock expanded in the heat and closed up at night. Over several years, it gradually got wider, though the slab is still stuck to the cliff for now. This process could explain why some rocks crack and fall without an obvious trigger. The paper is in Nature Geoscience. Scientists have genetically modified a zebrafish so its skin glows with thousands of colours. Each outer skin cell glows with a random colour, and the researchers can tell about 70 colours apart. This means that most cells are distinct from their neighbours. The cells can be tracked over time, and that allows scientists to watch how they respond to an injury. They saw that when a fin was amputated, old cells migrated and grew, and new cells appeared to keep the tissue covered. Check out the study in Developmental Cell, and a very colourful video at nature.com forward slash news. In the US, a big study of transgender teens kicks off. That's all to come in the news chat, but first, that miniaturised metre for measuring gravity. In her work as a volcanologist, Hazel Reimer often needs to look through the Earth at what lies beneath. For this, she uses an instrument called a gravimeter. My work has involved monitoring active volcanoes using gravity meters and also mapping subsurface structures at volcanoes using them. You end up with a, a map. It looks a bit like a contour map. So instead of contours of, of height, uh, which would tell you about the topography, you end up with contours of gravity. And measuring gravity is an indirect way of measuring something's mass. So if you're standing over an underground lake, it has less mass than the surrounding rock, and you can tell, by measuring the differences in gravity, where it begins and ends. The only trouble is... Standard gravity metres are um, quite temperamental, and they're a bit bulky. Uh, you, you can put them into a backpack, but they're, they're the size of, of a small car battery, so they're quite cumbersome. Not to mention expensive. Some can run to $100,000 and weigh up to 150 kilograms. Well, something smaller would be of huge use. Maybe something... The size of a mobile phone? The device that we've been working on is based on a, on a microelectromechanical system, so a MEMS device. This is researcher Giles Hammond, and a MEMS device is a tiny little electronic circuit like you'd find in your smartphone or digital camera. The actual MEMS device itself, the silicon wafer, is about a centimetre squared. 
and and that has the benefit of being actually very sensitive but at the same time extremely small compact lightweight low power gravimeters work in one of two ways absolute gravimeters measure the acceleration of a mass falling in a vacuum inside them relative gravimeters are basically a little weight on a spring and they measure the amount that the weight stretches the spring as a measure of gravity Hammond and his team at Glasgow University have built a tiny version of the spring-based relative gravimeter. So you might imagine that mass on the end of the spring when it sits in the gravitational field of the Earth. The extension of the spring depends on the gravity and also how, how stiff the spring is. If the spring's really soft, the, the mass will deflect a lot more. So we need to make a spring that's actually quite soft. We utilise etching techniques which make our, our springs incredibly thin. So our springs are about sort of um, half the, the thickness of a, of, a, of a human hair. And that allows us to make our, our little mass um, quite light. It's about 0.02 of a gram. The team showed that their device works by measuring a well-known tiny fluctuation in gravity. You know how the oceans are affected by the moon pulling on them to make tides? Well, the solid Earth has its own tide, the amount that the Earth's surface bulges due to the sun and the moon pulling on it. It's a tiny force two million times weaker than the Earth's gravity. But the device could pick up this micro-fluctuation. Now they're working to miniaturise the kit, and the smaller it is, the cheaper it will get. Giles estimates that these mini-gravimeters could go for around £1,000 a pop. This is great news for researchers like Hazel Reimer, out measuring volcanoes. Instead of taking one instrument around and making lots and lots of measurements, you could potentially leave several of these things continuously recording in place so that you would have not only an estimate of what the value of gravity was at a particular point, but how that changed through time. So, for example, on an active volcano, if you had 10 or 20 of these things um, located around um, areas of interest and see how gravity changes through time, you would have the sorts of measurements that are just completely impossible at the moment. I mean, you could almost chuck them into an active crater, not into the lava, obviously, but you know, so that they were really close to, to the area of action. Um, in a way that there's just no way you could do it at the moment and, and you wouldn't want to sacrifice an instrument. It might be a while until the new gravimeter can be dispatched into the gaping crater of a hot volcano. For one thing, it hasn't been out of the lab yet. Giles Hammond. The thing with the, with the lab-based environment is the temperature's relatively stable. We stabilise it to about a millikelvin, so about a thousandth of a, of a, of a degree kelvin. But, you know, outside, of course, the, the, the temperature fluctuations can be many, many degrees. Um, so that's one thing we, we, we need, to, you know, we're working on is actually making it robust in terms of its, of its performance in the environmental conditions. And then there's power supply to consider. Giles and his team plan to test out their device on some nearby reservoirs, halfway up the side of a mountain near Glasgow. Uh, there's, there's not many 240-volt uh, power sockets there, unfortunately. Uh, so we're actually developing the, you know, all the associated electronics to, be, to enable us to, to actually use the device running from a battery. The mini-gravimeter is something of a size contrast to Giles's other recent project. He spends half his time working on the LIGO gravitational wave detectors, sprawling, kilometre-long vacuum tubes and super-polished suspended mirrors. So really looking at you know, the, the most um, energetic and violent events in the universe, you know, that black hole system, 
it converted about three solar masses of energy into gravitational waves in about 100 milliseconds. Yet, as you say, on, on the other side, you know, some of that spin-off technology, you know, the ability to make suspension systems has really led to the development of, of this MEMS device. Giles Hammond of Glasgow University and Hazel Reimer of the Open University, based in Milton Keynes here in the UK. Find the gravimeter paper from Hammond's group and a News and Views article by Hazel Reimer at nature.com forward slash nature. Our next story is about people who are rude to others online and as such contains language which some listeners may find offensive. We've bleeped it, but just to let you know, that's the tone. Noah Baker has the report. This is the theme from a video game called League of Legends. In the game, millions of players from around the world form teams of digital champions who battle each other in an online fantasy arena, rousing stuff. That is, until you witness something like this. Holy f***, you bronze f***. I'm not even kidding, as in kill yourself. Write a note to your mom saying I killed myself because bullied me to death because I'm a That's a real player in the midst of a game. For the record, most of the communication in League of Legends is done via typed chat boxes. But this was a recorded message, and it's fairly representative of what you might read there. This kind of comment is so common that gamers have a name for it. Toxic. And toxicity is the focus of this story. In particular, what's being done to combat it. But we'll get to that. First off, I wanted to know how common toxicity actually is. Hello. Hi, Gala. My friend Gala is a gamer, so I figured she'd be a good person to ask. I'm calling to talk to you about League of Legends. Is that a game that you play? Um, Not at the moment, no, but I have in the past. As it turns out, she stopped playing League of Legends because of toxicity. It tends to happen with most um, online games that I've kind of tried to play. Um, Yeah, I've heard some really nasty homophobic and racial slurs just used quite freely um, on group chats with people who they don't really know anything about or have any kind of grounding in anything real. Gala also mentioned aggressively sexual behaviour and misogynistic language, but admitted that she quit the game pretty early. So I went to find some gamers who are more immersed in the world. At a video games bar in London, I met Nick, a gamer who's been playing League more or less since it was launched. I'm Nick. I work as an artist in the film industry. Nick was no stranger to toxicity either. Yeah, I've experienced people calling me all kinds of things uh, in various languages. Um, You know, the community is known for being toxic and awful. But if you have five good friends and you go in there and whether or not you win or lose, you have a good time, then it's a fantastic game for that. Clearly, toxicity doesn't put everyone off the game. But it's such a well-known issue that Riot Games, the company that makes League of Legends, decided to tackle the problem head-on. Here's Nature reporter Brendan Marr, who's been writing a feature about Riot Games and their approach to toxicity. The Riot founders have this very player-centric view of of what they want to do. They met with this fellow, Jeffrey Lin, who's a cognitive neuroscientist. He was working for another video game company at the time. And they said to him, you know, if we kind of gave you the keys to the kingdom, what would you do? What Lin did was turn to science. Well, he rooted a lot of his ideas in sort of basic behavioral psychology He tried a whole host of things. The first was simple. The one sort of tool that all video games can sort of have in their bag to to combat toxic behavior is to punish other players. And, uh, you know, it doesn't really work well. 
So Lynn developed these sort of really rich report cards that showed players exactly what it was that they had done that resulted in a ban, and that tended to, to improve their behavior pretty dramatically. But then there's the question of who determines what behavior is deemed toxic and what isn't. That's where the tribunal comes in. The, the tribunal is this way that players themselves would volunteer to rate different uh, different activities by their other players. An accused player will have this long chat log that sort of shows what he or she does in a game. And the other players sort of had this chance to weigh in and say, yeah, you know, this guy's behavior is pretty unacceptable. I got really into the tribunal, actually. I, I had arguments on forums about tribunal cases. I felt like I was sort of doing some kind of minor justice to my past self who had had to experience all of that kind of toxicity prior to the tribunal existing. But the problem was that this process took a long time, sometimes two to three weeks, even a month or more. So Lynn knew that he needed to give this feedback really immediately. Enter artificial intelligence. They fed these thousands and thousands and thousands of reports into an algorithm. They basically, as, as Lynn says, they unleashed machine learning, and they used this to automatically and, and instantaneously uh, render judgments and send people detailed feedback. So there's community involvement, artificial intelligence, constructive reports, all clever ideas. But did it work? So when they just give basic feedback, like you did something wrong on this game and you're going to be banned for six weeks, about 50% of people would sort of reform. You know, three months later, they wouldn't do anything offensive. When they started giving those rich uh, report cards, it increased to about 70%. And then when they gave it immediately, you know, powered by this machine learning approach, it increased to about 92% reform. That's a pretty incredible recidivism rate. And it isn't just about clever punishment. Lynn also tried to reduce toxicity at the source using a psychological principle called priming. The idea is that exposing a person to a particular stimulus can influence how they react to the situations that follow. In this case, the stimuli were text tips which would pop up on loading screens or at various other points during the game. Uh, and the tip could be something positive, like, you know, players do really well when you give them uh, a positive reinforcement. Yeah, and there's also one that says uh, players who follow the rules of the game, their summoner's code, as it's known, uh, win 27% more games. Whether priming really works has been called into question in recent years because the effect can be hard to reproduce. But the gigantic world of League of Legends allowed Riot Games to take a really robust approach. They tested something like 216 different permutations of, of different phrases and different colors and different placements on the screen. And, uh, and they actually get really robust results because they're able to do millions and millions of tests a day. And, you know, they found that these, these kinds of tips actually do have an effect. Um, you know, sometimes five to 10, 11% change in, in the amount of verbal abuse, uh, and offensive language that, that goes out in the game. All these efforts, and various others, have led to Riot Games reporting significant reductions in toxic behaviour. At the video games bar, Nick agreed that the tide is turning. Now, now there's a much more of a zero-tolerance kind of policy within the community that's been embedded there because I think people have sort of subconsciously realised that that kind of stuff does bring your gameplay down. It does, it does affect you in a negative way, even if you're not participating, if you're not instigating it. It, it, it's something that I think the community has turned against in a big way. Riot's efforts are continuing and other games companies are following suit. Some people are even suggesting that the steps Riot is taking could resonate throughout the web. For one thing, there's a lot of players playing this game. And if 
they start taking ownership of the culture and saying that, you know, this kind of behavior is not something that we want to live with. And we know that there are ways to, to stop it. Then, you know, that could have a pretty significant effect across the, the rest of the Internet. The techniques that Riot Games are using probably won't work on all online forums, but they're already working with companies like Reddit, and perhaps their methods could be adapted. For now, though, here's hoping that, on League of Legends at least, toxicity keeps on falling. If you want to know more about Riot Games, Toxicity or League of Legends, check out Brendan's feature. That's at nature.com forward slash news. Finally this week then, it's the news and US Chief of Correspondence Lauren Morello joins me. Lauren, hello. Hi, Kerry. Now, a new uh, NIH-funded programme worth almost $6 million is due to launch in May. Will you tell us what the uh, NIH are starting to fund? So this is an NIH-funded study. It's the largest ever study of transgender children and teenagers. And they're going to be studying two different things. One group of younger teens is going to be given drugs that block puberty, which is a standard treatment for kids who are transgender. It kind of buys time for their bodies to mature before they're given hormones to help their bodies match the gender that they identify with. And the second group of kids in this study is going to be older teens who are getting those hormones. And are they looking at kids who would ordinarily have got these anyway in kind of an observational like epidemiology kind of a way? Or is this a kind of a, a randomised control study, basically? Um, no, this is uh, it's a longitudinal study. It's an epidemiological study. These are kids who would have gotten these treatments anyway. Um, there's just there's not a lot of good data out there on how these kids do. And for example, um, the standard of care right now is to delay giving hormones to a transgender teen until he or she is 16. And I don't want to say it's entirely arbitrary, but um, clinicians and researchers don't have as much data as they'd like to back that up. And so this study is going to be looking for data that's going to help uh, physicians kind of refine the standard of care. And how long do they project that they will follow these kids for? They're hoping to follow them for at least five years. After that, I think it depends on the vagaries of whether NIH wants to keep supporting the study. I see. And they're starting to recruit participants for the study in May? Yes, they're going to be recruiting 280 teenagers at four different sites around the United States. Are there major questions in the air still about which of these treatments is better, how to treat transgender teens? Well, one area that's pretty contentious is um, whether to allow or to encourage prepubescent children and young teenagers who are transgender to live as the gender they identify with or whether they should be counseled to kind of wait and see for a couple of years because a lot of children who identify with a gender other than the one they were born with don't keep that gender identity over the long term. They revert to their gender of birth by the time they're adults. But teenagers who identify as transgender generally end up doing so for for life. So there's this question of whether to um, take a wait and see approach or encourage them to live as their preferred gender or in some rare cases, I think, 
to try to convince them to identify with their birth gender. So the first story there, obviously the the study will start recruiting in May and that's some uh, much needed money going towards funding initiatives looking at transgender teens. Now, uh, the second story is also kind of about funding, but unfortunately it's a funding cut. The National Science Foundation has decided to postpone uh, any further funding for biological collections. Right. I guess technically it's a funding freeze, um, but what NSF has announced is that They are not going to be awarding any new grants for the foreseeable future to support biological collections. And that sounds pretty nerdy and clinical, but what we mean by biological collections are things like fish larvae that U.S. regulators use to set fishing quotas every year, but also things like fossils and preserved plants and things like that that you would find in a science museum. And... NSF have traditionally funded this to the tune of what exactly? They usually spend between three to five million dollars a year on this, which is really, you know, a drop in the bucket given that their budget this year, I think, is seven point five billion dollars. And I mean, the other thing that's worth noting is that NSF is one of the only sources of grants for this kind of thing. So why is this funding being cut? As you said, it's not much of the NSF's budget. That's a little mysterious. We asked the NSF and they told us that they're evaluating the program. And as such, they can't tell us whether this funding uh, freeze is temporary or whether it's actually a permanent funding cut. They are aiming to finish this evaluation by the end of the current budget year, which ends at the end of September. Um, And they're talking about maybe restarting this program with a new focus. Scientists are pretty unhappy about this. So I guess they shall have to wait uh, until at least September for the evaluation to be concluded to see if the money will start coming again. Now, finally, a little piece of breaking news, and it is literally about something that is breaking. Um, This is the Japanese space observatory Hitomi. That's right. This is the Japanese Space Agency's flagship um, space observatory. It launched last month and has been going through, you know, initial testing to make sure that everything works before it starts gathering data. And unfortunately, it went offline this last weekend. What happened? Do we what do we know about why it's um why it stopped communicating? It's a little mysterious and there's some ominous reporting coming in. The United States Joint Space Operations Center, which tracks space debris, uh, has spotted, I think, five objects that are in the area the spacecraft was in around the time that it went silent. And the center is saying that these are pieces of a, quote, breakup. So the question is whether the spacecraft broke up, you know, did it have some instrument problem that caused it to explode? Did it get hit by a piece of space debris that crossed its orbit? Or is this debris just a sign of a problem that is less serious and potentially not disabling? You know, was there maybe a problem with one little instrument? So right now the Japanese are trying to get back in touch with Hitomi. They've detected at least one signal since they initially lost communications with the satellite. So it's a bit like Schrodinger's cat right now, I guess. No one knows whether it's uh, alive or dead. They haven't opened that box. You know, I think it's worth mentioning, Carrie, that the Japanese Space Agency has a history of um, essentially saving spacecraft that seemed like they were doomed in December They managed to maneuver a spacecraft called Akatsuki back into orbit around Venus five years after an engine failure um, left 
the spacecraft floating off course and everybody thought the mission was over. That said, it's also worth mentioning that two different versions of the spectrometer on Hitomi have met with fairly gruesome fates. But, you know, like we said, it's just it's too early to tell which way Hitomi's going to go. And JAXA has pulled a rabbit out of its hat before. Yep, got to admire their persistence, Lauren. Thank you very much. Next time, spotting the remains of dead stars buried deep in our own Earth's crust. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.